gospel lesson this morning is from Luke, the 20th chapter. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, then the second and the third married her, and so on. In the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him another question. (laughs) This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Let us bow for a moment of prayer. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts Be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jeffrey Coos, the professor of Christian ministry and theology at Seattle Pacific University, has written a book entitled Live the Questions. Now, several small groups here at Stony Brook have been studying his book over the fall. Coos shares an interesting and intriguing story as he begins chapter 4, which he has titled, Who Am I? Jeffrey writes, I was going for a run around Seattle's uh, great uh, Green Lake Park and I caught sight of a runner with a dog coming toward me. From my great distance, I was puzzled to see that the dog was wearing a strange collar. As they got closer, I could see that the runner was a serious one, very focused, and the dog was a Weimariner, gorgeous, purebred dog with grayish tongue to its fur, very majestic and sleek. The dog and the runner were moving just like pistons really in the zone and they were coming toward me which meant I wanted to run like I really knew what I was doing. One of the things we've discovered about this author is he's pretty competitive. He continues, as I got closer to the runner and the dog I noticed that the Weimariner's ears seemed extremely flappy, wagging around in all directions in the breeze. As I finally came to where I could see both the runner and his dog in detail, I noticed that the dog, this beautiful animal that stood atop generations of careful breeding, was wearing two bags of what we'll call dog dirt on his collar. The owner had scooped up after the dog, tied the bags of dog dirt to his collar and continued to run. Now with every pace the dog ran, it was being slapped on either side of its head by the stuff that had been scooped up. What I thought were floppy ears and a weird collar were actually normal Weimariner ears and a typical collar. 
What was flapping and bouncing with the rhythm of the run was a pair of receptacles of the dog's own dirt. Frankly, he writes, it was one of the most absurd and shameful pictures I'd ever seen, and rarely have I seen something so demoralizing. The dog didn't deserve the treatment it was getting. It was a magnificent dog, but it was being hit over and over, back and forth in its own head by its own waist as it was going along. Now, I'm sure that the runner thought it was really an efficient way of doing things, but my mind went instantly to an analogy. It's just like some of the stories that we write for ourselves. We live our lives bludgeoning ourselves with shame, tying it to ourselves, running through life with it strapped to us, deciding to become used to being hit over and over by our own shame and our own brokenness as if it were just the way of the world. Dr. Coos continues, a people of faith, we sometimes learn to accept what is essentially absurd, trying to get a sense of meaning and purpose while always beating ourselves up with shame. We become so used to it that we even learn to rely on the rhythm our shame makes as it bounces against us, setting the rhythm of our very souls. Now, Jesus has a very important message for us this morning. In a gospel text for today, Luke records Jesus' revolutionary description for his followers and believers, who he describes as having a place in the resurrection of the dead as children of God. And now hear this. We are children of the resurrection. Jesus gives us this transformational self-description and in the very end of his earthly life while enduring the mounting pressure from the opposition religious leaders of his time. Ancient Jewish rabbis and teachers loved to ponder and scheme about the law and writings of Moses. And they confronted Jesus with this convoluted interpretation of Leverite marriage law to try to catch Jesus in a trick question about a theoretical widow who managed to outlive a family of seven brothers. But, but I want to take a step back to examine the larger context and the setting for this strange encounter between, between Jesus and scribes and Sadducees. According to Luke's Gospel, Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem has drawn near its conclusion. In the previous chapter, as Jesus approaches the holy city with the palm branches waving, multitudes of disciples greeted him with this royal acclamation, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders were not happy. And Jesus drew within sight of the city and he stops and he weeps for sorrow over Jerusalem's lack of recognition of him and for its imminent future. Upon entering the city, Jesus goes to the temple not to worship or pay homage, but to drive those selling the sacrifices from the premises. Birds and coins went flying everywhere. The Sadducees and the temple officials got their feathers ruffled, to put it mildly. Jesus then takes up residence there, teaching in the temple, as Luke says, every day, while his opponents seek the opportunity and the means literally to kill him. They'd had enough. 
Now, this compact series of events constitute this, uh, this palpable intensification of tension and opposition that has begun to characterize this relationship between Jesus and the religious authorities. The tension grows even more in the scenes immediately preceding today's passage. Chapter 20 begins with Jesus' very authority being questioned. With what authority do you come here and teach? Jesus asks his own little question. Was John's baptism of God or of men? The religious leaders fearing whichever answer they offered, the people would be an uprising and so chose not to answer. Jesus says, I give you no answer either. Feeling the reaction of the crowd, that was how they simply determined to live their lives. He then tells the provocative parable of the wicked tenants, foreshadowing his own eventual beating and death. He then evades the rhetorical trap about paying taxes. And he says, well, do you have a coin? Let me see a coin whose picture's on the coin. And concludes that they should pay taxes to Caesar that were due to him and give to God what is due to God. And then that brings us to the resurrection question posed by the Sadducees in our text for this morning. Now, it is interesting to note that Sadducees who had primary authority over the temple and all the related cult sacrifices, only uh, uh, recognized the original five books of Moses as being authoritative. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Therefore, they didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead, since it is not referenced at all in the Pentateuch. We don't hear much about it until the book of Daniel and then in some of the Psalms. So they posed this question about resurrection to trap Jesus. They were a very respectful teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man dies, or man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died childless, then the second and the third married her, and so on the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman died also. Thank God. That's probably what she said. That wasn't in the text, but I'm pretty sure that's what she said. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? See, the law they reference called Leveret marriage from Leveri, uh, brother-in-law, comes from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. That'll be a little afternoon reading for you. It was designed to ensure the preservation of a man's family name by stipulating that man married a childless widow of his brother. The question is hypothetical. Remember, they just had a lot of time to put these hypothetical questions together. But their purpose was to show that the whole idea of resurrection was, in fact, ridiculous and blasphemous. But Jesus just avoids the trap by making two moves. First, he demonstrates their failure to understand the resurrection. No marrying or giving in marriage in the resurrection life. And in the resurrection, contrary to the assumption betrayed by their question, it's qualitatively different from life here and now. Second, he demonstrates their failure to understand scripture. This really irritated them. 
by another passage from the Pentateuch, the critical Exodus 3 story of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush and the revelation there of God's holy name. Jesus uses this story to establish the validity and the certainty of life after death. This passage, Jesus points out, declares that God is, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not that God was their God. Therefore, Jesus concludes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must in some sense still be alive. Hence the necessity of resurrection. So Jesus again avoids the trap of the interlocutors answering so well that his opponents are literally silenced by the astuteness of his answer. But the truth is, our questions about resurrection and its meaning in our lives still causes us some struggle with what Jesus means when he calls us children of the resurrection. So I'd like for us to spend some time this morning thinking about the meaning of resurrection. What is resurrection life? And going further, and perhaps more to the point, how much will our resurrection life be like our life in this world? You know, what we know. And what will our relationships be like? I've pondered those questions myself over the years, and I've heard them from many parishioners throughout my ministry. Yet the primary thing we learn from this particular passage is that we should not begin to limit our imagination, let alone God's design for life after death, simply because we are bound by our own current experiences. You see, eternal life will be qualitatively different from what we know in our temporal existence. Time itself, and with time death, will have ceased. Yet because we are such creatures of time, we are ceaselessly aware of the present bound by past and future that it's really kind of hard for us to comprehend. I've actually found it helpful to resist describing resurrection and heaven in temporal terms. So we can believe that in resurrection we will literally live in the nearer presence of God. And while we do not really know what relationships will be like, we know that we will be related to each other in and through our relationship with God. Next, how does resurrection compare with immortality? Now, immortality is a Greek notion, and many Christians today, and indeed throughout the centuries, have kind of gotten confused about immortality and resurrection. Immortality of the soul promises that some spiritual element of a person persists between, beyond physical death of the body. Resurrection, however, insists that the whole person will in some way be united with God. It is a whole person, not a wispy essence that God promises to redeem. Now, we do, in fact, die. There's no escaping that. But because of the one who died on the cross and was raised again from the dead, we live and die with the promise that God will similarly raise us from death to new life. And in Jesus' words today, we cannot die because we are like angels. We are children of God, being children of resurrection. Now, since we are promised a resurrection body, I'd like to go on record 
but I would very much appreciate having some hair. <laughs> but I digress. But that's what most of us do when we ponder the meaning of resurrection. We need to be careful that we don't get stuck asking the wrong questions like, well, what does resurrection look like? What, what kind of mansion can we expect? What guarantees can we count on? Or will I have hair? The questions about resurrection are not simply about how to imagine our lives and beyond, but more importantly, how being children of the resurrection can actually affect our lives right now. In reflecting on this text, I, I thought about my mother and her preparations for her death. She had planned her service. She planned it twice because she outlived the man she wanted to do her funeral the first time and had to fall back on her boys. She had prepaid her funeral arrangements when she went to the nursing home 10 years ago. Her burial plot was already there. She was buried beside my father, who had died 50 years before. They are buried on the plot where my maternal grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents are buried. Mother's choice to be buried in the cemetery at Hallsville indeed imagines a life beyond this one. She was sure of that, and of a certain kind of life, a life, a life lived among people that she loved, or her husband, her parents, her grandparents. And she knew most of the people in that cemetery because we would walk around on Decoration Weekend and she'd point out other folks that were buried there. How we imagine resurrected life gives us a glimpse into what matters for our lives here and now. And family was really important to her. You see, questions about resurrection are not just theological, they're deeply personal, they're relational, they have meaning. And that is Jesus' point. What we want resurrection life to be is in part what we want or wish life to be now. Let's be honest with ourselves. As much as we believe in the promise of resurrection, our belief in ourselves sometimes sidelines the promises of God. Remember Dr. Kuss's warning how easily we can live our lives bludgeoning ourselves with shame, trying, tying it to ourselves, running through life with it strapped to us, deciding to become used to being hit over and over by our shame, our brokenness, as if, as if it's simply the way of the world. So we attempt to orchestrate, delegate, delineate our future life with God in the same way we try to do the same now by ourselves here. And in doing so, we begin to overlook the promises Jesus makes about our future that literally should lay claim on our lives here in the present. Hidden in the dialogue in this debate between Jesus and the Sadducees is a critical claim for the sake of women and the nature of life in the resurrection. It seems that in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus has something more in mind than patriarchy that imprisons women now. No, women will not continue to be property. Women will not continue to be owned. Women will not continue to be passive in their places in society. The assumptions of the Sadducees when it comes to resurrection expose their doubt and their disbelief in its possibility, but also 
in their inability to imagine that God somehow might have something different in mind when it comes to eternal life and when it comes to what the kingdom of God should actually look like now. We can spend a lot of energy asking or imagining the details of eternal life, or we can begin to channel that energy toward how the security of the promise might make a difference in how we choose to live now. It's like imagining uttering these words, for I know that my Redeemer lives. You heard that in the Messiah. You know where that comes from? It comes from the book of Job. Regardless of the guarantees of the specifics of the redeemed, resurrected life, it's more about how we appropriate the promise of resurrection into our everyday lives here and now. Did you see the article in the Dispatch two Sundays ago? It's entitled Strength from Within. It was a neat story about Pastor John Edgar and the United Methodist Church for All People and the related nonprofit community development for all people. The little statistics were astounding what they were doing. They've distributed $20 million in free clothing, household items to more than 150,000 people. They have helped bring $85 million to the South Side to develop affordable housing, providing livable space for more than 500 families. They've helped to make families healthier by providing fresh fruits and vegetables to nearly 500 people a day. And the list keeps going on. The most remarkable thing is that all of this had been done down on Parsons Avenue. We know that neighborhood in the old South Side. It is one of the most historically disadvantaged neighborhoods in the city. Edgar says it was his faith in God and a simple approach that anyone in any community can duplicate. Asset-based community development. Change occurs, he says, when we bring resources and the assets that already exist together and focus them on the next opportunity. And he contends that people in any community are always the primary asset. He reports that every successful program is begun by asking community members about their hopes and their dreams, assembling the resources to make it the desired reality a possibility. The resources are always available because we live in a divine economy of abundance. God made it all, God made it good, and God made it so that there's enough for every good purpose if we simply share what's already here. Since 1991, right here in Columbus, Ohio, we see a little bit of heaven on earth where children of the resurrection are living into a whole new reality that is blessed by the living God. Now, the question of the Sadducees is just an attempt to bait Jesus, but disarmingly, it does the same for us. And we get called out for the ways in which we believe in a resurrected life that is really not very much different from the lives we live now. And we are asked to answer the questions of whether or not God might be promising something different in our lives now and in life to come. We get put on the spot for having assumptions about the promises of resurrection that are really pretty self-centered, very earthly, rather than having an expectation 
of the wider possibility of the revelation of God's grace. A church that is dedicated to radical hospitality and welcome put out a very unusual call on social media. This is what they ask. Send us your horse hair. Any horse hair, not just mane and tail. In the fall of 2018, Haywood Street Congregation, an urban church serving the homeless, poor, and marginalized in Asheville, North Carolina, sent out this unusual request for horsehair, because as some of you will know this, the artists will, horsehair is a key ingredient in the specialized plaster that is used in creating frescoes. A major fresco project was underway at Haywood Street Sanctuary. The painting is intended to illustrate the church's vision for inclusive community and offer a timeless witness to the gospel in plaster and pigment where the last finally are made first. I think of it as a love post, a love, a love letter, a postcard to our future selves, right, writes their pastor, Brian Cohn. When the sweep of our short lives is gone, this work of beauty reflecting the essence of human experience will still be here, still declaring what Haywood believes, that everyone is a person of sacred worth. Fresco paintings is an ancient method of creating enduring murals like the ones still found on the walls of Pompeii and the ones in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The style of art is unique in that pigment is applied to a layer of fresh, wet plaster becoming permanently integrated with the underlying structure as the plaster, mixed with horsehair, dries. A fresco never grows darker as it ages. It grows more luminous, reports fresco artist Christopher Holt. After this call for horsehair, Holt and his fresco team began creating sketches of the people, members of the congregation's ministry community who would be pictured in the 27 by 10 foot composition covering the entire front wall of the sanctuary. Often the models would sit for their sketches while waiting for their seating at the church's free come one, come all weekly luncheon called the downtown welcome table. This signature ministry of this church is not a typical soup kitchen. Often prepared by Asheville's top culinary stars, the welcome table lunch, it's always a multi-course meal served on linen-covered tables, set with china, cloth napkins, and fresh flowers. A lavish offering signaling that all deserve dignity. The first sketch was of Charles Burns, pictured prominently as the torchbearer in the upper left hand of the finished mural. Charlie was pivotal. He was a founding member of the community. He stripped down the barriers between folks on the street and Haywood's ministry. And he believed in this fresco project, Holt said. Burns did not live to see the picture completed, but his chiseled, cancer-weary face looked proudly out from the fresco. Robert Stafford is the church's beloved gardener and a board member. He's there pictured holding three sunflowers, his bright, clear eyes peering out from under his signature hat. I'm honored. To be immortalized on that wall forever, he says, is pretty neat. 
Stafford, formerly incarcerated, is open about his struggles with addiction. Everybody in that picture, he said, everybody there's got a story to tell. Inspired by the Beatitudes, the fresco would illustrate the church's foundational belief, blessed are the poor, blessed are the lowly. The homeless often feel invisible to society, yet what is most sacred is often most overlooked, Pastor Combs writes. Now, it was a monumental and expensive undertaking. The church raised $300,000, the antithesis of modern inclination toward quick and cheap. Detractors called it wasteful. The pastor reminded his board that Jesus had allowed a woman to wash his feet with very costly oil and reminded them that Jesus was constantly passing, trespassing boundaries of expediency and efficiency to do what was right. The church wants to show through art that this is how we treat every human being. Rather than depicting biblical scenes and characters as classical frescoes do, this fresco would feature members of Haywood's community. During the summer 2018, the artist refined the conceptual compositions, a rending of a mountain backdrop with community members literally lifting up this welcome table when the artists were working in the sanctuary, anyone who wanted could come and sit or sleep in the pews. Just this past October, Holt added the final brush strokes to complete the two-year project. The formal blessing and celebration at Haywood Street and their fresco took place this past Wednesday and Thursday. Time and time again, I've watched Haywood Street create a space for people to come to their most pure, authentic versions of themselves, artist Christopher Holt writes. Now they'll forever be part of this painting that will be viewed by generations long past our lifetime. The smug Sadducees wanted Jesus to decide, whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection? A woman who had been forced to marry the seven brothers. Got it all wrong, Jesus told them. For those who enter the resurrection will be like angels, children of God, children of the resurrection. Sadducees are left speechless. speechless. No easy report or reply. Truth is, it's hard for us too. The control we want to have over our lives now, we most certainly want to have continue in our life to come. Perhaps we might want it even more, anticipating that a reward in heaven might include a kind of power that we were not able to have in our earthly life. Our Lord's promise to all the faithful that we would be children of God, children of the resurrection, gives us cause for great thanksgiving. And it also becomes an important warning and reminder for each of us. Being children of the resurrection makes a difference now, or at least it should. Jesus also talked about his kingdom where the least, last, and lost will be honored, promoted to first, and assured of being found. Commenting on the significance of the newly dedicated fresco, the pastor writes, I think of it as a love letter, postcard to our future selves. When the sweep of our short lives is gone, this work of beauty reflecting the essence of human experience will still be here, still declaring what Haywood believes, that everyone has sacred worth. So, if we were to send Stony Brook Church 
a postcard to our future selves, what would it say? What would we send? And if you were to send a postcard to your future self, what would you say? What would you send? These are questions about legacy. Will you pray with me? God of parables and riddles, how you tantalize our minds by your glory. We marvel at your universe stretched beyond the reach of any human eye or telescope. We behold infinity in a blade of grass and eternity in a drop of water. The vision of life is too great, it, it blinds us. And we raise our hands, we turn our heads from the brilliant light. Lord, do you not know that we are only human? O oh God of mysteries and secrets, how you tempt us by your love. We wonder at your faithfulness stretching beyond the reach of any human heart or, or promise. We feel boundless compassion at the touch of your hand and endless forgiveness at the sound of your voice. The experience of your love is too much. It, it dazes us. We fall on our knees. We reach for you in the trembling air. Lord, do you not know that we are only human? Oh, but you know. You've endured long centuries of our sinful ways, and your ears have grown heavy from our monotonous defense. We are only human, Lord. You expect too much. Surely with your arsenal of power and might, you require no help from us. Yes, Lord. You know well that we are only mortal, for only we have been so proud as to declare our utter independence from you in one breath and then our utter dependence upon you in the very next breath. And only we among all your creatures have dared to question your goodness in creating us and our dignity in being us. Well, God, remind us that being only human is not meant to be a cause for shame, but, but a cause for thanksgiving and celebration. We are yours, your children and children of resurrection. We are born to be reborn, to awaken from the sleep to the spirit, and to put on the colorful clothes of your glory and love. Convince us, Lord, of the truth of your parables and riddles. Let us live only for you, holy God, remembering that we are children of resurrection and equals of the angels. Let us render true judgments, showing kindness and mercy to everyone, treating all as brothers and sisters of sacred worth. Oh, may the saving word of the Lord triumph over all malice and every cruelty in this world and in the next.